Well, good morning. We're glad you're here this morning. Do you feel, it feels more Christmassy today, right? I mean, you walk outside, my, my little girl, she was so upset last year because we did not have snow. Like, it wasn't snowy enough. I don't remember exactly. I think all the snow came, like, from January to, like, June. Hey, no worries. <laughs> Um, I don't get distracted very easy. I shouldn't lie when I'm preaching, huh? Well, guys, if you're new here this morning, um, please go by the new here uh, area of the lobby. We've got a gift for you. Um, the other thing, uh, if, if you don't mind, we instead of having you fill out like a, a card that you often get when you go visit a church, uh, we try to make it really simple here. And in your program, you'll see a number to text, and you just text that number, and that's how you can kind of get connected. You can easily kind of end those texts by just saying stop, but we want to just share with you kind of what we're about and what's going on here. We'll talk about some more uh, announcements, what's happening here at Lifestone at the very end of the service. Um, But today we're going to start a new series, and um, it's a new series, and it's an old series. Uh, We actually did this and we're going to change it up a little bit, but uh, we did this like six years ago. So who was here six years ago that experienced carols? Okay, Cody, you can go if you want. <laughs> now, we'll, we'll, we are going to look at some new aspects. But I just loved this because uh, Christmas and carols that we sing is, is such a tradition, I think, in our culture. And, and I thought it was really neat to look at some of these classic Christmas carols that have profound biblical truth. And I think often because of the familiarity of these things that we sing, they kind of get lost. And we're just like, oh, this is a cute little Christmas tune that we sing, and it feels Christmassy. Uh, But what are we singing? Um, And sometimes these tunes are pretty old. And so sometimes the language is a little different than how we might put things, phrase things. And so what we're going to do is look at these, look how they line up with some, some deep, like I said, profound biblical truths of the Christmas holiday, of what, what God has done uh, through that. So let me pray, and we will jump into looking at O Holy Night. God, we love you, and we thank you for this opportunity to gather together with other people who are seeking after you. God, I pray you would bless our time here together. Uh, I pray that you're honored in everything that we do from from the way we even interact and, and connect with people uh, before and after the service. And, and God, I pray we take your truth and apply it to our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, here's what's interesting. As we look at this first carol, O Holy Night. Now, I always laugh when I think of this carol because there is a horrendous version. Probably the worst version of any Christmas carol I've ever heard is a recording of O Holy Night. Don't worry, I am not going to play it for you. <laughs> I don't want to ruin it. It may scar you for life. But if you do a little you know, Googling and YouTube searching, you'll find this horrible rendition of O Holy Night. And I had my best friend back in Texas, he was our worship leader at a, a church there. And, and um, man, he would just, as soon as December kicked in, in the office he would start playing that horrible rendition. And it is so bad, it's hilarious. So we just laugh and laugh and laugh. And so that's what I always think of when I think of this carol. So, so I have to go, okay, no, this is the, don't think of that version. 
There is some incredible stuff in this carol. But here's some things I think that are fascinating about this carol. It's written in the mid-1800s, and it's written by, well, well a French priest actually asked a, a local French merchant and uh, uh, a poem writer, uh, I'm like, what's a poem writer called? A poet. <laughs> Woo! It's hard talking in front of people sometimes. Uh, he asked this uh, pretty well-known poet to write a poem based on Luke 2. Uh, Luke 2 is probably the most well-known account that, that many of you may, may be a part of your Christmas celebration. I know it is for us, that we sit down, wake up on Christmas morning, and, and before we kind of open presents and do stuff like that, we read Luke 2 uh, to just remind us of, of, the, um, of the, the real Christmas story. And so this priest asked uh, this guy named Placid, uh, Placid Capu um, to write this poem. And what was interesting about him asking this guy to do it is he wasn't a Christian. He, he didn't attend church, and he was kind of known as kind of a hellraiser. He was kind of a rebellious guy. And yet, but he had this gift of, of writing poetry. And so he, he asked him to write it. Um, and then uh, the, the writer of the poem liked it so much that he asked a musician friend of his to put it to music. And what's weird about that is the musician wasn't a Christian either. <laughs> so we have one of the most well-known Christ, uh, Christmas uh, you know, carols that we sing written by these non-believers. Um, and when the Catholic Church, went, so is this... This song went out and became really popular. It just immediately was like this huge hit. Um, and, and so people just, it spread like wildfire. Then the Catholic Church found out who the author of the, you know, of the lyrics was and the, and the music and was like, oh, no, we, got, we, we can't endorse that. But it was too late. It just had taken off. People had embraced it. Um, and, and so that's part of the history of the song. The other interesting thing is you fast forward to 1906 a, by a guy by the name of uh, Reginald Fezenden. Some people call him the uh, father of radio. He uh, was Canadian. He kind of had a dual citizenship that he claimed Canadian and American. Did most of his work in America. But he is the, uh, a person and an inventor at the, near the turn of the century that um, was the first person to successfully broadcast um, AM radio, you know, which can, became kind of, as the beginning of radio, the standard uh, radio. And he broadcast the first uh, broadcast, the, the first show. It was three days before Christmas, and so what did he do? He, you know, had a Christmas theme. Uh, he played some Handel. Uh, and then and he read from Luke 2 again, um, and the people listening to it, people that actually had receivers, the very first AM receivers was, was some military boats out in the Atlantic and, and some, some other uh, commercial vessels out there. And then he kind of impressed people. He picked up his violin and played this song, O Holy Night. So it's the first live played uh, song over AM uh, radio, the first radio broadcast uh, is, is the, the claim of it. And so let's look at the lyrics of O, o Holy Night. Um, 
It says this, I don't know if that's too small to read, but many of you are familiar with it. O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. And it really does beautifully lay out the gospel. And the gospel begins with a problem. The good news begins with a problem. It's such good news, but it's good news based on there being a big problem that's solved. And so it talks about that the world is sitting and it's pining. You know, and again, maybe that's not a word we use. It's not super uncommon, maybe. But if you pine away, you're fretting, you're worried, you're pining away at at the bills you have to pay or what your kids are up to or whatever, uh, that the world is in their sin and their their error and they're just in in fear and, and worry and anxiousness about it. Till he appears and the soul felt its worth. And that, that, and some of these lyrics, and he was a beautifully, I'm sorry, a, a talented poet. Uh, the soul felt its worth. That, of course, the one who created our soul, God, is the one in which we connect with, where we can truly uh, feel the worth that, that uh, only when it's connected to the creator. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morning. And actually, that's what we're going to focus on this morning, uh, the thrill of hope and the weary world rejoices. Um, fall on your knees, oh, hear the angels' voices, oh, night divine. Kind of makes me want to break out in the song, the night when Christ was born. I had a lot of you ask me if I was going to sing, and I, I, th- I think there was a worry there. There was like, hey, <laughs> there's some other churches around maybe I could go to this morning. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing. And then, and then I love how it ends with a, an appropriate response to who God is, that he solves this incredible problem, that without him we have this worry and, 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 we're, um, and we're weary and we're just tired. But, but he is the ultimate uh, solution, and the response that we have is to fall on our knees uh, before a good God. So have you ever thought about that Christmas night, though? Because that's what I think we really think of when we think of this night, right? Oh, holy night. And if you're like me, I'm real visual, so I think like a picture of, um, well, it's kind of like the Lord's Supper. What do you think when you think of the Lord's Supper? Everyone's sitting on one side of the table, right? Because <laughs> we think of famous paintings, right? And what do we have famous when it comes to thinking of the night of Jesus' birth? A lot of nativity scenes. You probably have some set up at your house. We got some in the lobby. And so, again, I think that everyone's faced to an audience, you know, is kind of this setting where there's, there's not, you know, this, this kind of weird thing just like the Lord's Supper. And, you know, you've got the wise men there, and it's this beautiful night, and the stars are shining, and there's an angel, and it's this beautiful setting, right? Uh, we know from the Bible that the wise men aren't even there. They're, they're not a part of the, the scene. They come on uh, later. Uh, after this night, but just think about that night. Like, here's what the reality is of that night. You've got a young teenage girl who is nine months pregnant. So erase the image you might have in your head of your cute little nativity scene, okay? I'm going to destroy your Christmas images here. And take this this nine-month pregnant uh, young teenage girl traveling somewhere around 100 miles on a donkey, and they're going to this small little 
village, which is the ancestral home of Joseph. And what's the purpose of that? Like a holiday celebration? Oh, yeah, that's where we get Christmas and we go dashing through the snow to Grandma's house or something. No, they're not going to some celebration. They're going to be taxed more, basically. Like, why do they want to do the census? Because they want to count heads so that they can obviously use it. The reason they would do a census is so that they could appropriately tax or increase tax or whatever it is. So they have to do this journey. And then they get there, this young couple, who we find out later in Jesus' life especially, that they really don't have uh, much means. They're, they're a poor family. We get that from, from them having to, to bring a sacrifice of turtle doves, which is, is the allowance for a very poor family to sacrifice when they didn't have the means to sacrifice something more expensive. And so they're very poor. She's nine months pregnant. And then they get there, and there's nowhere to stay. And then in our minds, oh, this beautiful little manger scene that seems like we would set it up as a bed and breakfast or something. But really, if it were happening today, it would be this pregnant girl. They couldn't find a place to stay, so they were sleeping in their car at a city park or a rest stop because there was like, what, what would you do if you had no place to stay, nowhere to sleep? Like, that's the setting. There's a lot of maybe, I'm guessing, stress, <laughs> anxiousness involved in this situation. Uh, Joseph is already in a situation where, the, where his, his family and his friends, the whole culture and society is really looking at them with a lot of skepticism, a lot of judgment, because this is an unwed couple, and she's nine months pregnant. And so he's dealing with all of that, you know, and he has this assurance that he, you know, he, he, ha- he has God that directs him and tells him the plan, but he still has to deal with everybody else's view of them as a couple. And then, I mean, I don't want to get into too much detail, but I hear the birthing process isn't the most pleasant, fun, delightful experience, right? It's not the, I don't know, hallmark picture of, Oh, and then Jesus was just born. I'm guessing. I mean, we don't get an indication that miraculously Mary, when she had Jesus, there, were, there weren't any of the, the pains of the birthing process or anything. So I'm thinking this young, scared teenage girl screaming her head off in pain. No epidurals. <laughs> you know? On to- no, no nurses. No ice chips. I guess somehow that... That takes away pain of the birthing process. I, I don't know. No doctor, <laughs> you know. And so if we could, you know, for a moment, really step into this holy night of what, you know, the reality of it probably was, uh, rather than the cleaned up picture, I think, that we often get in our head, um, I think it, we can actually appreciate it more of the faithfulness of, of, of young Joseph and very, very young Mary and what they were doing and what they were going through. And then the other thing I think it does is it shows that here's God saying, I'm coming into the world in this way. And he immediately shows us that his values are very different from ours. That, that our values would be about, you know, comfort, about like... You know, that would not be the scenario if we had all power 
if we had every ability to, to make this circumstance of, of a, a baby coming into the world and there was just limitless ways that we could do it, we wouldn't do it. I wouldn't pick to do it in that way. You know, I'd have the, the most elaborate, most beautiful setting for it. I would, you know, the best medical care of the day, which who knows what that was. You know, there would be royal, you know, cloths of, of nursery set up and, you know, whatever. It wouldn't look anything like what God chose to put the setting in. And so immediately God, you know, is, as he does time and time again, is saying his values and the way he does things is really upside down from how we often think of things. And what's important is um, we, we often miss. So I said we were going to focus on this, this one little phrase in here, in, in, the, in the song. And it's a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. Um, and then it goes and says, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. And, and I'm just thinking in this whole setting... <laughs> of Jesus being born, and that night not being able to find, you know, uh, an end to, to, to stay in and everything that had to happen, I'm thinking, yes, Jesus is born, and that is amazing, and that is wonderful, but I'm thinking they probably got to celebrate a little bit more the next morning, you know, after going through what, what must have been an incredible ordeal, and then having Jesus and having this baby, I mean, I think the other thing we have to take into account is the fact that, especially back then, there would be a, a high probability of, of a baby not making it through the birthing process. And, and that next morning, though, they have this baby, this perfect baby, literally in every way, and, um, and, and the rejoicing of going through, and I think we don't think of that, what must have been a difficult situation. And that, that first day, that first morning of having rest and seeing what God had done, I think must have been glorious. Um, so many people I talk to today, and uh, you know, I think you would agree with me, that, that we're just, we live in a, in a culture, in a world that we're weary and we're tired often. Um, and, and, and we just... Uh, you know, the world and the pace at which it goes these days and, and, and just, I mean, this is, I think is just throughout human history, though, is, is that people just are kind of weary. There's a weariness, and I think the poet here kind of penned that accurately, that, that life is full of brokenness. <clears throat> we see that. It started in the first couple chapters of the Bible, that the world is broken, that we live in a broken world that's full of broken relationships. It's full of uh, disease and chaos and heartbreak and pain. I know these aren't beautiful pictures that I'm painting, but just the reality of the world that we live in is not the perfect world that God intended and created, but it's broken. And what breaks it? The Bible's clear, sin. Sin messes up everything and breaks everything. And God, of course, knows that. And God, of course, knew all this was going to happen. And he brings the ultimate solution to sin. And, and, but that's where we live now. We're in this weary uh, condition, this human condition filled with anxiousness, filled with fear. Um, the, I, I think the average person 
that is kind of a place that they, if they aren't there in their, in their life right now, there is a time in their life where they get there because of whatever circumstances happen in life. With broken relationships, with the, you know, not knowing just our situation in life, um, that's often. And the thing with the holidays, and I know you've probably heard this many times, and I've seen it in a real, a real way as a pastor, is it can amplify that. You know, if we have weariness in our own life, if we have struggle and, and concern and anxiousness, sometimes for many people, the holidays is a bright spot and it's a, a time to celebrate and bring family together. But for others, it can amplify the fact that there's maybe strain in relationships or problems in finances or problems, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in, in whatever they're dealing with in life. It can kind of just put a spotlight on it. And so, um, as we look at this, I hope this is hopeful. We're going to get to more hopeful stuff. Stay with me, okay? I see a lot of people not smiling out there. All right. <clears throat> so, if you're experiencing that world, uh, weary world time in your life, or you know that can, that can be a part of life, what I want to do is the passage we're going to look at is in Lamentations. Uh, it's in Lamentations chapter 3. 20 through 23. And let me just give you a little quick context of what this is. This is the prophet Jeremiah, one of the most well-known prophets of the Old Testament. But this is a very down time, a dark time in the time of God's people, the nation of Israel. They have been exiled and they're in captivity. They're taken away to Babylon. Uh, Jerusalem has been um, overtaken. The kingdom, uh, the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah is uh, conquered. And it's because of a result of them kind of turning their back on God. And that's what we see in the Old Testament. His people kind of turning to God and then going in their sinful nature, just going their own way and turning away from God. And then coming back to God because of the consequence of whatever happens. And then there's this back and forth, right? And this is one of the lowest times. Uh, and Jeremiah, someone who is... Who, uh, is an example of someone trusting in God and following God and try to lead people back to trusting and following God is lamenting, <laughs> quite literally. That's why it's called lamentations. He is brokenhearted over where God's people is and what is happening. Um, and, and what's interesting, uh, just when you study this, this book, you'll probably run into the fact that um, there's some really sophisticated uh, writing and poetry that we find in the Old Testament and the way that this is written is it's an acrostic uh, used, uh, they use the Hebrew alphabet. And, and Jeremiah uses, he starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and he begins each sentence that he writes or each verse that he writes uh, in this kind of poem. He writes it starting out with the letter that, you know, that comes next in the Hebrew alphabet. And so it's this big acrostic that, that writes there, and I think it's five poems or songs that he writes. So as he's going through this dark time, though, there's hope, and there's, he knows that there is a God who this isn't the end of the story, that he is completely in control, and this is a dark time, but there's incredible hope that he's pointing to. Uh, and so I think it just mirrors this, this carol that we sing sometimes. And so uh, Lamentations 3.20 says, I will remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this, 
so he acknowledges the pain and the suffering of his people and where they are right now. Verse 21, yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. So we're jumping right into the middle of it, and a lot of the beginning of Lamentations is the heavy lamenting part, is just where we are and how brokenhearted um, um, the people are, and he's reflecting this. But then in verse 321, yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. So no matter how dark it is, how scary, how anxious, whatever circumstance uh, you are in personally, I hope this is an encouragement because they are going through something incredibly painful. Um, and he makes a choice to remember this. I love the way he does this. I call this to mind because he knows God's truth. And so he makes an intentional, deliberate choice to say, but I know truth that I'm going to focus on. I'm going to put this, I buried this in the back of my mind because of the pain and the suffering me and the, my people are going through. But what I'm going to do, I'm going to choose to bring to the front of my mind this truth that brings hope and brings comfort. Um, Verse 22, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassion never fails. And and, and I love if you see the description. I've heard some people say, okay, there's a God of the Old Testament, and he's kind of scary and mean and vengeful and like harsh, and he's kind of like the strict dad. And then in the New Testament, like Jesus comes along and he's chill and he's just, he's all full of grace and mercy and love. That's really bad theology. <laughs> God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. His character does not change. He is just and he, deal, he cannot ignore sin and we don't want a God who isn't just. We don't want a God who ignores sin. We do when... When we're the sinners, we're like, hey, could you kind of forget that, sweep that under the rug? But if we're sinned against, if someone does something harsh or cruel or mean or, or completely unfair to us or a loved one of ours, we want justice, right? And we would demand justice. And if we ran into a judge that, that had the ability to, to make a, a situation, to bring justice in the situation, and they just said, meh, I'm a chill judge. I'm a cool, you know, I'm just, I'm just whatever. We would say, you're a horrible judge, <laughs> right? If it was for us, um, something done terribly to us. So we want a just God. His characteristics are perfect. Now, all of his wrath, and maybe we see a bigger picture of it in some senses in the Old Testament, but the Bible says he pours all of his wrath, all of his judgment, which is, is just and right and correct to do, He pours it on his son. And so we're in a different dynamic. We're in a different relationship. That's part of what we celebrate in the communion. And that's why Jesus takes a ceremony that's lasted for hundreds and hundreds of years and says, okay, we're in a new covenant with God. And this covenant is based on what Jesus has taken on 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 our behalf. But the character and nature of God doesn't change. So throughout the Old Testament, we see that the, the people who are connectly, connectly, that's not a word, people who are connected to God in such a way that they're even prophets of God, that God is using and speaking directly to them, are, are reminding us, you are full of love. You're full of compassion. He is an all-loving God. He always has been. Um, his compassion never fails. Um, 
And it goes on in verse 23. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. So, so despite perhaps, I mean, some people might argue this might be the most weary. This might be the most dark. This might be the most horrible time in the, point, in the history of God's people. And, and, and yet, Jeremiah is reminding us that but God is, is in charge and there's always hope. And every day that comes is a reminder of new hope. So what we're going to look at is this new day with Christ. So if you're taking notes, number one, this new day that, that Jesus brings us specifically, this new hope, this hope that we can always have, first of all, it's exactly what we need. It's exactly what you need is what God gives us. Not always what we want, because sometimes we sit in a situation and we're like, why God? But God always provides us with exactly what we need. Um, As Jeremiah proclaims this truth, he said um, in verse 24, I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I, I will wait on him. And, and we don't know for sure, but a lot of scholars think that when he's saying he's my portion, he's reflecting back to the, the nation of Israel after they're miraculously, God brings them out of Egypt, out of, out of 400 years of captivity. They're wandering in the desert, and because they, they start this pattern again of, of going against God and not trusting in him, they have to wander for, for 40 years. And in the midst of that, though, they're in the desert. You ever hang out in the middle of the desert? It's kind of hard to get by. The, the nation of Israel at this point is somewhere between a million and two million people is our best guesstimations. This is a lot of people out in the middle of the desert. And so God miraculously provides exactly what they need. And he provides what, what the Bible calls manna. And, and the best translation I've heard of what that means is, what is it? It's like just this stuff <laughs> that, that they would wake up in the morning and it would just be on the ground. And it was this, what is it? But it sustained them. And it's exactly what they need. And God was trying to teach them to trust in him every day, day by day, every morning, that he would have, uh, that, that we could hope in this new morning and that, uh, that God would provide. Because if they tried to say, well, this is all the stuff we have, it sustains us, and so let's store it up. And, and, and for, that, for that particular uh, time, God was teaching them to trust in him. So if they tried to store it up, many of you know the story, it would just go bad. And, and you know, it didn't work out how they, they had to just trust in God day by day that he was going to provide exactly what they needed. And that's what happened. And so um, uh, just connecting it to our personal lives. When we're going through really difficult times, I think it's very important to take it day by day and just every single day connect with God, ask him and, and show, ask God, show me what exactly you want for my life today, how you're going to provide day by day. And, and then what that does is does what I think God was teaching his people puts trust every single day. 
I mean, something as, as a ministry leader for, for a lot of years, like I worked with teenagers for a long time, and I saw this in my own life in a huge way, is trying to get people to have some kind of daily devotional life. You know, when I was growing, when I was growing up, when I was a youth minister for like 12 years, we call it a quiet time. And that wasn't very cool, talking to teenagers. You need to have a quiet time. I don't know. I would, maybe I'm just being too critical. It didn't sound very cool, you know, and I'm trying to get these teenagers to embrace you know, this radical life, following Jesus, and start your day by, like, having a quiet time. <laughs> That's how it came across to me. So whatever, but, but it's a beautiful concept. That, that That's what Jesus did. And his followers that followed him, what did they see in his life? They saw such incredible connection with God the Father. And they, they, here they're watching a guy do miraculous things like no one's ever seen. They're, they're seeing a guy teach and proclaim and speak and gather crowds of tens of thousands of people. And, and, and they don't go up to him and say, would you do a seminar on how to do a TED Talk like really well? Would you do a seminar on how to do like miraculous healthcare? That that would be, man, I would have such power and influence if I could do the kind of healing that you did or do the kind of speaking you did. No, they 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 saw his pattern of life and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Because we see that that is the source. That that you get up early. His pattern was that he would go away and spend this quality time with God. And, and so I just want to encourage you in this time, even in this season, if that's not a kind of a pattern of your life, or if you're going through something really difficult, to make that, to introduce that into your life. Start your day by connecting with God. And uh, we, along with this carol series, we've got some devotions, and we're going to email them to you. So if you're connected with us through email, somehow, magically, Keely's going to help me make that happen. Okay, tomorrow we'll send out this devotion. It's a 25-day devotion, so it'll take you to uh, Christmas. It's kind of Christmas-themed and themed about the things that we're talking about. Um, number two, the hope to keep going. This new day that, that God brings, this encouragement of, of newness and that he is in control, is this hope to keep going. In verse 25, it says, The Lord is good to those who hope, whose hope is in him to the one who seeks him. Uh, and what I love about, anytime you see the Bible reference hope, it is not usually the hope we think of. And I know many of you have heard me say this. It's not like I hope I win the lottery, right? Or I hope I get a raise, or I hope I... It's not this like just wishful, fantasyful thinking, or this positive thinking, and then somehow God kicks in because we have this positive thinking. No, it's like hoping in something that is so sure, because we're putting our hope in something that is unchanging completely. It's God. So he keeps his promises. He is unchanging. And that's where our hope is placed. So his promises, it's like, and I can't even think of a good, you know, comparison. Um, gravity. That's the best thing I got. Like, like, are you pretty, you know, when you drive home this afternoon or drive to lunch or whatever, are you pretty confident that gravity is going to keep you to the ground as you drive. You're not going to, like, all of a sudden float up and, like, ah, this is crazy. What am I, you know, in Hogwarts or something? Or, you know? Like, like, and even that is not as sure as the hope that we have in God. God created gravity, right? 
So this is something even greater than that. So when the Bible talks about the hope that we have in Christ, the hope that we have in God, it is not just, well, I just kind of, you know, it is like this is absolute confident hope that, that, that is unchanging, that I can bank on 100%. Because what are the other things we put our hope in that crumble right before our eyes? Things like money, uh, people, politics, uh, our own success, our own intellect, our experiences, um, all those things are very shaky, can be very changing. And sadly, that's the hope that we, we are often trying to grab a hold of in the midst of, of hard times, too. Like, well, if I could just have this thing be, you know, and, and the, the ultimate hope that we can grab onto is God. And the last one there is number three, um, the help you're seeking. The help you're seeking. Verse 26, it is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. That God is a God that offers us salvation. He offers us an ultimate plan that works out if we receive his, his gift, his grace. Um, verse, uh, Romans twelve eleven says, The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because of our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over and the day is almost here. So I just know, you know, as we start out the season, I hope that you're not in that place, but a lot of people, it can be a tough time a tough time of year, and it feels like you're in this dark place. But, but when we turn to God, there is a solid hope that we can uh, completely bank on, and, and he promises us uh, that this is temporary, that our circumstances are temporary. And the thing that we're probably disappointed in, the thing that we probably has let us down and, and led us to whatever place we're in, is, is something that is not, is not the thing that we should put our ultimate hope in. And the thing that we are called to put our ultimate hope in, God himself, he will come through. He will completely satisfy, even though it might seem like a time, and Jeremiah talks about that, a time of darkness. And, but he knows what's ahead. He knows that these things are just uh, temporary. The last thing I want to share, and I'm going to ask the band to come up. We're going to sing this carol. We need to sing this carol, and I hope it has more meaning to you as we sing it. But a couple things a non-Christian, as I started out with, wrote this. And a non-Christian wrote the music. And yet, he obviously knew the story. And he knew the truth. And I think sometimes we run into that. And in no way would I want to plant some seed of doubt in someone's heart or mind about where they stand with God. But this is not, when we come to understanding what Christmas is about, what Jesus is all about, what he's done, this is not just an intellectual exercise that once we know this intellectually, that then somehow that is what makes us right with God. Um, I mean, to give an extreme example, and we get this, we get this exact example in in, um, uh, Galatians, is Satan knows all this. His demons know what Christmas is about, what Jesus is about. They have the intellectual information. So it's not believing in a sense of intellectually uh, just accepting that that is what happens or that who, I mean, even the, the writer of this, and I hope something happened in his life and he came to a place of accepting <laughs> the story that he, that he wrote. 
But that's what, what's different, <clears throat> is what are we trusting in? Have we received this free gift that God offers all of us of salvation? How do we receive that? We fall on our knees, <laughs> as he wrote, which simply, in a, in a sense, we, we repent. We understand that we can't save ourselves, that we're not good enough. There's nothing we can do to be good enough with God. And that we understand that the only way to be right with him is to receive this free gift. And we receive it in faith. And what that simply means is just, okay, we're trusting in what Jesus has done for us. And it's that is what saves us. Not knowing it, but actually saying, God, I, I need it. I repent. I, I admit that I need it. And I'm trusting in what you have provided.